young people uh, to, uh, to stand up to authority. Uh, that's kind of a rite of passage type of a thing in adolescence. I know uh, it was for me. Um, now, I, wasn't, I don't want to uh, stand up here in front of you and, and paint myself as, as you know, the most rebellious kid ever because I really wasn't. But, um, but I've always been confident in my beliefs and opinions, we'll call it that. And, uh, and I didn't always know the best way to express them when I was a teenager. I mean, if I'm honest, I, all, I still don't always know the best way to express them, but I feel like hopefully I've grown some and in maturity uh, from when I was younger. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to, I went to an all-boys Catholic private high school, uh, and there were a lot of rules to follow, uh, a lot of things that I had to keep track of. Uh, I was one of the few students that was not a, a Catholic, um, and so there was, I had some uh, disagreements with my religion teachers. Religion was a four-year class requirement, uh, and, and so there was a lot of rules that I had to follow. There, I was, it's not like I wasn't allowed to disagree, but I had to disagree respectfully, and that's not always a line that uh, is easy for teenagers to, to walk. And, uh, and I tell you what, my least favorite rule of all in my high school was the dress code. Uh, I know that, I know <laughs> talking to the students, uh, especially around DPS, they don't like their dress code either. Um, I didn't mind the, the collared shirts or the dress pants so much. I, I'm mostly in, dre- in my high school dress code right now, although my shirt would have had to be tucked in. I would have been in trouble for, for the untucked shirt. Um, but the worst part of it, the dress code, uh, was the, the rule about facial hair. Uh, it was an all-boys school and they had this rule for, for professionalism that we were not allowed to have facial hair below the bottom of our ears. So they let us have sideburns, uh, but no beard. Or, well, I mean, at the time, this was the 90s after all, no goatee, right? Uh, that, was, that was my jam, <laughs> the goatee. Uh, and listen, I started shaving the summer before seventh grade. Uh, that's just kind of genetically how my family rolls. And so back then, I was all about the goatee. So in the summers, I, I was like Wolfman Jack. I, left, I let it go crazy. Uh, but then during the school year, it was every day shaving. And I hated that. I, hate, I still hate shaving every day. Um, it just feels like a lot of time for, you know, who cares? But anyway, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't like it. And so I decided in my infinite teenage wisdom that the rule was dumb and I wasn't going to follow it. Uh, and so I started to let my sideburns creep a little lower just to see if anyone would notice, right? Because they've got that rule at the ear. So I'm like, oh, we'll let them get a little lower. And it, it worked. A couple of days went by. Nobody said anything. I'm like, all right, cool. I was feeling like really rebellious, you know? Awesome. So I'm going to let it go a little more. So I just, I stopped shaving altogether. And, uh, and you know, my five o'clock shadow was, was going after a couple of days. And uh, the assistant principal noticed and uh, he pulled me into his office. He was in charge of the discipline at the school. And uh, he pulled me in and, and told me that I was out of dress code. And he, he graciously uh, gave me uh, till the next day to fix it. And so uh, I went home that night and I realized that this was my moment. This was my moment to stand against the tyranny of the oppressive dress code of my high school. And so I chose in this moment not to shave. And sure enough, the next day, the assistant principal called me into his office, and he was not, he didn't yell at me, he wasn't even angry, he just gave me an after-school detention that ended up lasting three hours that day. Uh, He made me wash every desk in the freshman wing, that was my after-school detention. Um, And as if that wasn't bad enough, he also opened the drawer in his desk, and he handed me a razor. 
And he told me that since I didn't fix my problem with shaving cream at home, I could fix it without shaving cream at school. And so I started to walk out of his office to go to the bathroom. He said, no, where are you going? I said, well, I get water, right? He's like, no, you could have had water at home. So I, I had to dry shave with a razor that who knows where it had been in my assistant principal's office. So that was my reward for my, my strong stand against authority. And unfortunately, school wasn't the only place I resisted authority when I was a teenager. Um, you could ask my parents about that. Um, I know it's probably really hard for you to believe, but I was kind of argumentative as a teenager. Um, and my parents got the worst of it, as, as usually happens. And, and one time I remember after a heated argument, uh, I tried to get in my car and drive off to be alone for a while. Um, but my parents grabbed the keys first off the hook, and they reminded me that even though I paid for the gas, they had bought the car, and they paid for the insurance. And so I needed to ask permission to use what I considered to be my car. So here it was again, my moment to stand against the injustice of parental authority for having the audacity to restrict access to a car that I didn't pay for. So I, I stomped out to the shed in the backyard and I got my bike because my bike was all mine. And that'll show them, right? I, they couldn't stop me from riding my bike. And so off I went. It was raining, by the way, hard. It was freezing. And I realized about three houses down the street that both my tires were completely flat. I made it a half mile on two flat tires in the freezing cold rain before I got off the bike, turned around, and walked it back home. And I walked into the house just dripping wet. And my parents looked at me, and they chose to laugh at me in that moment. And man, I could have fired up, but I looked at myself, and I thought through the situation, and I joined them in their laughter because I realized that I was being ridiculous, that that rebellion was not the one to take, you know, to take my final stand on, Right? And most of the time when I pushed the boundaries and I questioned authority as a teenager, most of the time it just wasn't about things that are important. When I look back and consider it, um, usually it was just stuff I didn't like. It was just stuff that I wished was different or that I thought that, that, you know, that, that I should be able to do things the way I wanted to do them. And that's when I pushed back against authority. But sometimes, sometimes authorities in our world go overboard. And it's not nothing. Sometimes it is a big deal. And so what happens when the authorities in our world go overboard and they stand against God? And more than that, they, they expect us to make a choice that goes against what we know God has asked of us. So that's our situation today. That's the situation we're looking at in Daniel chapter 3 uh, with these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to start in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come up to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, 
zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. This story happens between the two dreams that we talked about last week. Uh, After the first dream, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, right at the end of the chapter, we read that Daniel leveraged the king's approval in order to get positions for his three friends, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Um, and their positions were in a province of Babylon outside the capital city, Um, and and while Daniel served in uh, the the royal court in the capital city. And so uh, over the years, you know, the question has been asked, well, where was Daniel? Why wasn't Daniel here? And I think the simplest answer, I don't know this for certain, but I think the simplest answer is that when the king and all of these people left the city to come out and dedicate this image, someone had to stay back at the city to be in leadership. Uh, And we know that positionally, Daniel was pretty high up in the royal court, so it makes sense that Daniel would have stayed back in the city, but Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, would have had to attend this this dedication. Um, And so the king made this image of gold, this huge statue, uh, it, you know, if your, your, your note in your Bible probably lets you know that it was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Uh, that's the, you know, translating the cubits. Um, and that's all we really know about it. Uh, we, we know it was gold and we know that it had really weird proportions. If you think about it, that's a really skinny statue for as tall as it is. Uh, I don't know how that worked, but whatever. Um, we don't know what the image was. Uh, a lot of uh, kids' Bibles, if you read the, you know, the board book Bibles to your kids, uh, assume that it was a statue of the king, uh, but that would have been pretty rare. Uh, in, in Mesopotamia, in this area, in these cultures, it was rare for kings to promote themselves as gods. That was more of an Egyptian thing to do. And, and there's really no historical evidence that Nebuchadnezzar asked his people to worship him as a god, uh, that he set up other statues and images uh, to, to himself as a god. Um, but there's lots of evidence that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped uh, the gods of Babylon, uh, primarily one or two that, that he, he adopted as his primary god. So it's, it's more likely that this image is of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's main god that, that he worshipped. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the Veggie Tales on this one, but uh, Veggie Tales, I think, was probably on the right track when they used a statue of a huge bunny uh, rather than a statue of, uh, the, of the guy, right? Of, I can't remember what vegetable he was, but, uh, but, but it was a statue of the bunny. It was a statue of the thing that the king uh, loved most of all, right? The, the, the God that the king served. And most people in Babylon would have been okay with the command to bow down and, and worship this other God because if you're polytheistic, what's one more? 
You know, if you're already worshiping gods for every occasion and every type of different thing, what's one more to add uh, to the mix? But that wasn't true for the Jews. Uh, remember, the, the Babylon had conquered uh, Judah, had conquered Jerusalem, and taken the Jews into exile. And the Jews who were in exile, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in attendance on a day like, like this, had a choice to make. Uh, it wasn't okay for them to just bow down and add another god to their god. Um, that was uh, a, a pretty big no-no. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter what the statue was, because the Bible is clear that any image worship is idolatry. So whatever the image was, worshiping it would have been wrong for God's people. And God doesn't give any wiggle room on this. This is the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now before me, no other gods before me, that doesn't mean that we can have other gods as long as we don't put them before God. It it isn't an idea of priority. Uh, Before me means in my presence, you, no other gods are to be in my presence. No other, God doesn't tolerate any other gods. It's God or it's idols. One or the other. God says we can't have both. And not only that, but, but God forbids the creation of any images for worship, uh, even if they're images of him, which I think is interesting, but that's a sermon for another day. In the ancient world, uh, images of the gods were were thought to be the physical representation of the god on earth. They understood that the, the, the wood statue that they made wasn't God, wasn't a God, uh, but it was a, a representation of that God. And even more than that, uh, the, the, they believed that the, the God would uh, indwell the statue that they made, the idol that they made at, at specific times that the spirit of the God uh, would actually come and live in, in the statue that they made um, and, and they would need to, to serve and worship it and, and honor it. But God, the God of the Bible, will not be confined to a statue or an image that we make of him, uh, he will not put up with us worshiping anything but him. And the jealousy of God uh, in this area that the Ten Commandments mentions, the jealousy of God isn't sinful jealousy. That word uh, jealousy in, in, in this context, that specific Hebrew word, is typically used as a marriage term in the Bible. That, that spouses expect and desire faithfulness from one another. Uh, So in a sense, you could say that uh, I I am jealous for my spouse's affection, for my spouse's loyalty. I am jealous that it should only be for me, right? Um, I know that's a weird way to use that word because that's not how we use it, but that's, that's biblically how it's used, that God is faithful to his people and God expects faithfulness from his people. But throughout the Bible, God's people struggle to stay faithful in their relationship with him. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter one when he says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Idol worship happens 
when a person takes something in creation, something that's been made, and says, this is the most important thing to me in the world. This has all the power, all the influence in my life. This determines the way I will live. And we can look back at the Old Testament and think that worshiping a statue is ridiculous, because it is. But idolatry doesn't really look like that anymore. But that doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. Now, an idol is the thing or the person that you're most concerned about, that you think about the most, the the thing that affects your life the most. It's the thing that you put on the throne in your life, the, the thing that influences your decisions more than any other thing. And so maybe, I don't know, think with me this morning, maybe it's money. Maybe it's, maybe it's the security that money brings. Maybe it's not that you love money, but you love the security of having plenty. So everything you do is about getting more money or keeping your money, right? Or maybe it's, it's the addictions that we have because our addictions can make pleasure an idol so that all of our efforts and all of our thoughts are aimed at that next experience, that, that, that next high. So we pursue alcohol or drugs or sex or something else in order to, to have that feeling again. Or, or we might chase after power and, and resources because we have, we have a control issue, because we feel like we need to be in control of our circumstances. Or because we feel like we've been hurt so much in the past that we deserve revenge against those who hurt us. And so we go after uh, control and resources and power so that we're in a position to to get our revenge. We we might take relationships, uh, or one relationship in particular. We, We might make that our idol, gearing our lifestyle and our decisions around the will of a spouse uh, or a boyfriend or girlfriend um, or or our, our kids. Success in our career is an idol when we let it take God's place in our life. And even our own safety is an idol if we let it become more important than following God. If, if staying safe is more important to me than doing what God has asked me to do, it can lead into idolatry. And so there's so many different areas that can lead us into idolatry, that can lead us to worship something that is not God. At least in the Old Testament, idols were easy to recognize. It's a statue or some image of gold. And like, okay, well, if it's a statue or some kind of image made of gold, it's not God and we don't have to worship it. I feel like that would be easier, right? But idolatry in our culture is a lot more subtle. But it's just as dangerous because God com- God's command hasn't changed. You shall have no other gods before me. So when we turn to idols instead of God, God doesn't stop us. He doesn't force us to worship him. When we go through our life worshiping idols, we, you know, we, we, we go through our life being addicted to this thing or chasing after this thing, and, and then something bad happens, and we blame God. How dare God let that happen to me? And that's what the Israelites were doing throughout the book of Judges, where God says, you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. If you'd rather worship an image instead of the God who made it, God won't stop you. But you better be sure that it can save you 
when you need it. And I'm here to tell you, we can't. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew it. They knew exactly what this image stood for, what the statue was about. And they understood that they could not be faithful to God while also bowing down to this idol. They also understood the risk that they were taking. They understood that the cost of their resistance could well be their life. And we wonder why they didn't just go along with it. Like pretend, right? Pretend to worship uh, on the outside, but really worship is an internal thing. And so you, didn't, you don't worship on the inside. No one else would have to know. Nobody else seemed to have a problem with it. So why make waves? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, pick back up in verse 13. Furious with rage. This is becoming a theme for Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, he threw down the challenge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The king gives them another chance to prove their loyalty to him, since it seems that he didn't actually see them refuse to bow the first time. This is what religious persecution at the hands of a government looks like, by the way. Uh, this is a targeted effort to force a minority group to conform to a majority practice that the, the religion of that minority opposes. The king understood. The king knew what this meant for the Jews. This was forcing them to make a choice. And the list of official government positions, you may have noticed the list in verse two with the satraps and the prefects and all the others, and verse three that's repeated over and over again. These are, are political officials from all around the empire, and the king is, is probably using this opportunity to solidify his power and his control over his diverse empire by forcing them to show a loyalty to his gods instead of their own forcing them to make a choice to embrace uh, the, the culture and religion and worship uh, of Babylon rather than their own. And, and the, the three friends quietly protest. Again, you know, just like all the way back in, in chapter one with the king's food, they simply choose not to participate. They don't, uh, they don't petition the king. They don't uh, make a big public show of it. Uh, and they might have gotten away with it 
too, honestly, if, if it wasn't for these certain enemies who were watching for them and turned them into the king. And in our world that's filled with noisy protesting uh, online and in person, we might look at these guys and think that they're cowards. If you really believe in your cause, you, you make it loud and you put it out there in front of everyone. We may think they're cowardly until we see what they say to the king in verses 16 through 18. Basically, we don't owe you an explanation. Pretty bold. We know God can save us from your punishment. But even if he decides not to do that, we will not serve your gods. No matter what the result, deliverance or death, these three will stay faithful to God and not give in to idolatry. And their choice shows us that we have to be willing to resist idolatry at all costs, even to the point of death. Like we look at these guys like, oh, they should have just pretended, they, should, you know, they, could, have, they could have not made waves and, and they just gone on with their lives. But this is important. This is important to them, to worship God alone. And it needs to be important to us. And for all our complaining about infringements of our rights in this country, we are rarely, if ever, confronted with this kind of choice. But when we are, because it sometimes happens, and it especially is happening throughout the world, by the way, maybe not so much in this country, but Christians throughout the world are facing choices like this on a regular basis. When we are confronted with this kind of choice, when government or other authority demands that we act against God's will that has been clearly expressed in the Bible, we have to join with Peter and the other apostles in saying we must obey God rather than human beings. And when we do choose civil disobedience, we need to be sure that we're defending God's actual will and not just calling our own selfish desires God's will. We can't just dress up what we want as God's will and then use that as an excuse to say, I have to obey God rather than men. Be careful. Be careful attributing something to God. Be sure before you make this kind of resistance. Because listen, the Bible in more than one place commands us to be subject to governing authorities. We don't like that. But hey, it's in the Bible, right? 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, uh, if you want to write them down and look them up later so you know I'm not lying to you, the government's authority, through, through the lens of the Bible, the government's authority is delegated to it by God. We've seen this in Daniel over and over again, that God says uh, that God is in control in history, but God allows these things to happen. But then when the king uh, gets too uppity in his pride, God puts him in his place and humbles him. God's active, but he allows government to do its thing. And in, these, in, in multiple places in the Bible, we're called to submit to it, right up to the point where obedience to the state would mean disobedience to God. At that point, it's our responsibility to disobey the state in order to obey God. So actions like breaking a speed limit that I think is dumb or refusing to pay a tax that I think is unfair, those don't qualify. Those are not obeying God rather than human beings, okay? Just because I want to drive fast doesn't mean I get to disobey that posted law. God has called me to submit to governing authorities. But being commanded to publicly affirm a false God and pledge my loyalty to that false God over the true God, that qualifies. 
That qualifies as a time to disobey. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobey. And their disobedience made the king furious. I don't know how often this guy can get furious, but uh, furious. So before he threw them into the furnace, he ordered that it be made seven times uh, hotter than usual, overkill, literally. It was so hot that the soldiers that threw them into the furnace died in the flames outside. The soldiers weren't even in it and they died. Uh, And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell in. And so we'll finish the story uh, from verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble so no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King really likes threatening death. Not only did these three guys not die or catch on fire, but their clothes came out as good as new, and they didn't even smell like smoke. Now, back in verse 15, the king asked, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And it seems as if God fairly definitively answered his question by not allowing him to harm a hair on their heads or a stitch of their clothing. There's a lot of ways God could have saved these guys, right? If he wanted, he could have extinguished the flames. He could have blocked the furnace. Uh, he, he could have saved them without any fanfare. Just kind of let them not die and then walk out on their own. Um, but instead, uh, he lets them get thrown into the furnace. He, he, he doesn't save them before they're thrown in. Um, but he didn't let them get thrown in alone. The king saw a fourth person in the fire and he called him an angel who who looked like a son of the gods. He he didn't have terminology for what he was seeing. Uh, And so we, of course, want to know, who is it? Who is this mysterious fourth person in the furnace? And uh, like throughout the book of Daniel, you keep hearing from me and I know it's not satisfying. We don't know. We just don't know for sure uh, who this is. Uh, It could have been an angel that God sent to protect his people. Um, It could have been God himself, uh, the way the text reads, that God himself showed up and was with them. Uh, Some people argue that it was Jesus, that it was a a pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, And and listen, it could be, because the Bible is clear that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So in a way, uh, it makes sense to to view this fourth person as, as Jesus, as God with us. 
uh, the presence of God in the form of a person to do life alongside us. That's who Jesus is. But whether it was God himself or an angel he sent or, or a pre-incarnate Jesus, the point is that God showed up in the midst of the flames to protect his people from harm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they experienced God's promise from Isaiah 43, where God said, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. God chose to not save them from the fire. Instead, God saved them in the fire. They stood for God when everyone else was commanded to bow to an idol. When they were commanded to bow to an idol and everyone else did, they stood for God. So God stood with them as the king tried to burn them alive. God did not abandon them in that moment. They knew that God had the power to save them, and they also knew it was possible that he would choose not to. God has the power to deliver us from any problem that we face, but he doesn't always prevent suffering. We know that to be true. We've lived that truth. And we don't know why, because it's God who chooses. God chooses whether he, he'll save or not. He chooses whether he'll deliver or not. He chooses whether we'll go through it or not. But listen, regardless of God's choice, he is always in it with us. Whatever it is we go through, he goes through it by our side. He doesn't always choose to miraculously intervene in our circumstances. There are times when God lets events unfold on their own. He doesn't guarantee that we won't experience suffering. He doesn't even guarantee that we won't experience death, but he does always promise to be with us in the middle of whatever we're facing. And some of these stories in Daniel show us how to, to get along in, in a culture that is hostile to God. And some of these stories show us how to just put up with it. You know, I understand what they're doing. I'm gonna do my thing, but I'm not gonna challenge it. It's, it is what it is. Some stories show us how we can work from within the culture to change it for the better. Daniel served in, in, in this government uh, to change it for the better. But this story shows that there are times when we have to refuse to go along with what the world is asking us to do. When culture demands that we put our faith and trust in something other than God, we resist. Living for God in a world that isn't living for God means worshiping God alone. Even if it leads us into civil disobedience, even if it leads us toward dangerous consequences, we trust God to handle those situations. Even though we don't know for sure what he'll do next, because we trust that God is in control. Let's pray. God, it's easy to say you're in control. 
It's easy to read these stories uh, hundreds of years later and look back and see that you were in control the whole time, that you knew what you were doing. But man, it is difficult when we're in the middle of it, when we're going through it. It's difficult to trust that you're in control. It's difficult when I don't know what you're about to do next, when I don't know if you're going to deliver me or not, when I don't know how it's going to happen. It's difficult to trust. And so, Father, I pray for trust. I mean, as we, as we enter into this time of communion, Father, I, I pray that uh, as, as we do this every week and we, and we have this weekly reminder of what uh, your son Jesus, your, your presence in, in, a, in a person chose to do for us, to, to, take, to take what was rightfully our punishment for the sins that we committed onto himself. I just pray that, uh, that 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 would remind us and inspire us to trust you, that you know what you're doing, even when we don't know what you're doing, Father, maybe especially when we don't know, you know. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. So whether the fourth person uh, in the furnace was Jesus or not, we can't help but see Jesus in this story. Uh, God himself came to live among us, in a, a chaotic world filled with sin and suffering. Uh, and, and he even experienced death. God even experienced uh, death himself. And God didn't reach down to take us out of this broken world to come and be with him. God came down to our broken world to be with us. And Jesus doesn't always save us from the fire, but he does save us in the fire. So, so when the communion trays pass by this morning, please take a set of cups and hold on to them until we can take communion together uh, as a family. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our sin. The God we serve is able to to deliver us from the blazing furnace. But even if he does not, we will not serve idols or worship images. God will do what God will do. So the question is, will you serve him no matter what he does? Let's sing one more song together as we're dismissed this morning.